Hello, and thank you for joining us again on Into the Prey. We've got a quick favour to ask you guys before listening to this week's episode. We want to ask you to go ahead to rate and review Into the Prey so that we can lift the level of what we're doing further. Visibility in the podcast charts would help with that massively. It would also help to address the imbalance where folk can often be very specific and more than willing to leave reviews or so-called reviews when they're not happy with what we're doing. So there are, we believe, a vast majority of you who are happy and appreciative and grateful. It'd be very good to convert that into rates and reviews that give us a more reflective presence in the podcast chart so if you go ahead and do that we've also got a new patreon page if you want to become one of our patrons stroke supporters please do follow that link look at the information and consider doing that as well thanks again for listening and please do feel free to use the contact page to drop us a line with any questions thoughts or reflections the devil wants that on the one half is the blessing camp and on the other half is the repent camp that's what the devil wants okay and that is what's happening but actually, it comes back to this misunderstanding of what it means to, to know and worship and love a good God. Is that the blessing is the repentance. God, for all intents and purposes, needn't be there. And we need to recapture a sense of the godness of God, the greatness of God, the majesty of God. Hello everybody and welcome to Into the Prey, the podcast breaching the chaos of the church on our midweek session. Normally it'd be the three of us today, myself and Mary, along with Dave Brennan. We've just decided to shift that to next Wednesday to give a bit of time for people to listen to what I'm going to say today and then absorb that and then we'll have a conversation on the back of that, as I say, next week. I'm sure we can all understand and relate to that way that the Holy Spirit sometimes gets our attention about something in particular and begins to speak often quickly and with great force. And if you're anything like me, that happens and you then go into a, a frenzy of what I would describe as waiting activity. You're waiting on the Lord, you're listening to him, you're aware that he's communicating through you and you're aware that he's He's intervening, he's intervening in your life um, by speaking, by confirming and that kind of thing. And that's happened to me over the last five days or so and that's resulted in writing an open letter to the church um, and I've spent the last two or three days writing just trying to really laboring over what I've write, written in order to be as concise and as clear as possible and as true to what's on my heart as possible I wanted to be true and faithful to what I believe that the Holy Spirit is saying and also um, handling the word of truth correctly um, I'm just going to read the, an open letter to you in just a minute um, and then as I say next Wednesday there'll be the three of us discussing said letter but I wanted you just to hear a couple of things by way of insight so you can know from me directly how how this has worked at my that process I've just talked about in terms of feeling convicted aware of the spirit moving um, and feeling compelled that's the only word I can use really compelled to communicate about this um we uh, the example i'm going to give is anonymous okay so i was ex i was um listening to a church leader talking to his church um, a pastor just a few days ago over the weekend and during that meeting i um 
there was reference to there having been some folk within the congregation who'd expressed confusion and concern because at the early stages of the COVID pandemic, the kind of triumphant prophetic quote unquote word had gone out that there would be no COVID in this church. And lo and behold, a whole bunch of people, including the pastor giving the word, had got COVID. And then some folk had had quite understandably wanted to know what that was all about. The response to that was that Isaiah 53, 5, you know, we're healed by his his stripes, we've been healed and so on. Um, that, that That was the ultimate reality. And that even though folk had got COVID, including the pastor, that actually the ultimate reality that people somehow just needed to appropriate and and kind of be in faith for was what we should be thinking about. And as though somehow that was a justification for the the false prophecy that there would be no COVID in this church. Um, So on the one hand, you've got a, a prophecy that had proven to be not true, had proven to be false. But on, but on the other hand, as part of that, you have this doctrinal position or theological understanding, which is that even if, for example, you have an illness, even if you have a, the a, if you, even if your body is carrying disease, like whether it's COVID or whatever, that the ultimate reality because of Isaiah fifty three five is that his stripes mean that we have been healed, and that therefore his prophetic word was right because there's no COVID in this church, even though there is COVID in this church, because Jesus' stripes mean that we're healed. This is this is the kind of theology that is commonplace within many churches. And um, I heard that and I was distressed. I, I felt indignant. I felt an indignation in my heart that I reckon I've come to recognize isn't just my own personal um, response, but rather the response of the spirit within me. This is not true. And whether or not the pastor in question recognizes that and repents, I'm also mindful of a whole bunch of people in the church who are quite rightly and understandably expressing expressing confusion as to how it could be that we've got a prophetic word here. There's going to be no COVID-19 in this church, but but lo and behold, there was COVID-19. And not only that, we have some kind of theological doctrinal spin on that that I think leaves people in a in a place of deception, in a in a place of um as we're about to hear, uh, gangrenous error. So that happened and I began to, I felt I, be- I needed to respond to that by communicating, uh, obviously not with the, the specific church or person in mind, but rather just in, in a kind of corporate sense, which is which is what we're doing week in, week out here. The second incident, as I was writing, this was just yesterday, which this is what I was referring to, alluding to a minute ago when I said that in in this process of the way that the Lord often speaks, there are there are a, a kind of a combination, a number of different things that happen in in sequence, which give me a, a sense of peace that I'm seeing correctly, I'm seeing clearly, and I'm hearing clearly. Because when it comes to the prophetic, you know, this is a relevant conversation, of course, in our series, all the prophets. For me. When when I'm trying to discern whether something is the Spirit of God or not, constant, my default mode is, Lord, is this you? Is this you? Is this really you? It's like at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah where, where God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, what do you see? Jeremiah tells him what he sees 
and the Lord says what you've seen well. That's my default mode. And so I've been, I'd started to respond to this incident I've just described to you from the church in question and the dodgy, I think it's just fake, it's just false prophecy. Um, By the way, in, in the Old Testament, people would be killed for that. You know, you'd be literally would be killed if you were proven to be a false prophet. Today, it's kind of like, well, so this thing of discernment is very important. Am I seeing correctly, Lord? Am I hearing correctly, Lord? And I was kind of partway through this open letter yesterday. and I had a phone call from a friend who um, I didn't know at the time, but we had a we had a, a what I would call a beautiful kingdom conversation. It wasn't planned, wasn't scripted. It was about an hour and a half, the difference between a chat and a, and a conversation. You know, it was a proper conversation. And essentially, um, my friend was expressing concern. And I think maybe even though they, even though he didn't use this word, a, a sense of distress and confusion at some stuff had been going on in the church that he and his family go to, which, which was a dodgy theology, a dodgy doctrine. The Bible calls it doctrine of demons, by the way. Um, to do with little gods, our being little gods. I'm going to let you listen to the source of this, or at least one of the sources now, in a, in a Creflo Dollar clip, where this little gods, quote-unquote, theology, uh, erroneous, false doctrine comes from. So just bear with me for a couple of minutes. I'll let you listen to this, and I'll jump back up. Now, in verse 26 and verse 27... God now submits himself to this principle of everything producing after its own kind. And in verse 26 and 27, let's read it out loud. Ready? Read. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now that's interesting because if everything produces after its own kind, we now see God producing man. And if God now produces man and everything produces after its own kind, if horses get together, they produce what? And if dogs get together, they produce what? If cats get together, they produce what? But if the Godhead gets together and say, let us make man, then what are they producing? They're producing gods. Now, I got to hit this thing real hard in the very beginning because I ain't got time to go through all this. But I'm going to say to you right now, you are gods, little g. You are gods because you came from God and you are gods. You're not just human. The only human part about you is this physical body that you live in. So as I'm hoping everybody who's hearing my voice will agree that if you'd heard that in your church by your church pastor or somebody that your church pastor and leader had welcomed in to teach the church, you'd understandably be distressed and confused and a whole range of different responses, perhaps, one of which is, what do I do? 
we discussed this in part with Elisa Childers the other day. You know, what do you do if you're in a progressive, quote unquote, progressive gospel church? You know, the question is, what do I do? What do we do? And that's why I've written this open letter. Um, a beautiful way that the Lord has just allowed me to have a sense of assurance through the timeliness of that call from a friend. And if you're listening, thank you for phoning. Um, mate, I appreciate your um, humility and integrity. And see, this is the thing, guys. Just, just as you come to listen to this open letter that I've written, there are many, many people like my friend who are in positions of being in a church congregation in a church somewhere where theology, either through commission, like I've just given an example of, where something completely ridiculously erroneous is brought, or where it's more subtle, you know? People are in this conscription of conscience, the consciences of the people of God, and yet looking at what the options are, which would be to leave a church with a view of then what? Going to another church? Well, what happens if there aren't a church? There aren't churches that are faithful um, to Scripture, and so of course this brings us back to the more radical conclusion, which is that Lord is doing something much more widespread within His people, within the so-called churches, and that that's not a quick fix. You know, you don't just come to a point of distress and and crisis and think, okay, I'm going to take the weekend, come to a new decision, and next week or maybe into the new year we'll. Will have figured it out. No, there needs to be this this kind of coming before him. I think in distress and lament and so on and so forth, where we begin to hear from him in a new way. You know, you don't just you don't just navigate something as seismic and as serious as what God's doing within His body at the moment by a quick decision over the course of a weekend. There is a there is a process of travail. There is a process of soul-searching and repentance and coming before him in unhurried prayer. And so there are lots of people, I, I have no doubt, there are lots of people facing the early stages of this disruption. And I don't think you can be faithful to God in 2021 or 2022, be faithful to him and not be disrupted. So disruption is the order of the day. And I'm just going to read this letter to you now and then pray at the very end. Is your church faithful? The instruction of 2 Timothy in assessing the faithfulness of our churches. The 1st of December, 2021, Edinburgh. Dear Church, I am persuaded that God is preparing his people for the second coming of Jesus, perhaps even within some of our lifetimes. As such, he is preparing his people to stand I'm also persuaded that similar narratives are being used by Satan to compound his doctrinal heresies in the church that are currently hamstringing many congregations and many people of sincere faith. Please bear with me as I've laboured over this written piece to be as concise as possible. As you read, also remember that this word is addressing matters of eternal significance. The main burden of my letter is located in 2 Timothy 2 verses 16 to 18 where Paul writes, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. 
Therefore, let me ask you, what type of church do you belong to? What type of church do you lead? What type of teaching do you spread? What type of theology and community do you support? And as you consider Paul's final writing to the church, can the congregation that you go to be legitimately considered a faithful church? As we consider these questions by looking at the book of 2 Timothy, it would be helpful to remember our friend Melvin Tinker, who very sadly passed away last week. Perhaps you will remember him as he lay praying on his bed with the dying request of being able to witness to the nurses who were with him, to be able to share the gospel just one more time, and being delighted as the Lord opened up that particular way of grace. As we recall the fruit of Melvin's ministry, the pattern of his sound words, we shouldn't be surprised by this dying crescendo because the gospel heartbeat of his life was being seen in concentrated microcosm as the time of his departure from this earth drew near. This is exactly how we must come to read the book of 2 Timothy, as a concentrated microcosm of Paul's life and his dying plea to churches for global faithfulness in the body of Christ. As he makes his final appeal to Timothy to follow the pattern of the sound words you have heard from me and to guard the good deposit entrusted to you, there is a particular weight in Paul's words, both from the sum total and the signature emphases of his life. We must keep this in mind as much as we might keep in mind the final words of any faithful saint on the verge of passing away. Whether praying in a hospital or writing from a prison, people tend to prioritise precision when their earthly privileges to pray and preach are slipping away, when the finishing lines of their races begin to appear. It follows that over and above Paul hoping to again see his favourite cloak or books and parchments left in Troas, he urgently charges Timothy to preach the word and to guard the good deposit of the gospel the gospel with which he himself had also been entrusted. If Melvin was still praying in hospital now, if Paul was still writing to the church from a prison in Rome, I believe the urgent nature of their instructions to us would be just the same. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. However, for Paul, this prioritising precision was more specific than only guard the good deposit of the gospel. Rather, like Melvin's specific desire to share the specific gospel of Christ's unique grace to two specific nurses, it is the signature characteristics of Paul's life, his most precise priorities that we see in microcosm in this letter. Number one, intense eschatological awareness. Number two, encouragement to endure suffering. Number three, the kindness of repentance. Number four, the kingdom of heaven and the hope of glory. And number five, true versus false doctrine. And yet even more precisely than these, we see that Paul's charge to Timothy specifically involved an awareness of three types of people. Number one, those who were in doctrinal error but for which there was also hope. Number two, those who were in doctrinal error but for which there was zero hope. And number three, those who have loved his appearing. 
These very same categories of people characterise our church landscape today, but they are not always easily identifiable. Why? Because the precise detail as to what constitutes sound biblical doctrine is predominantly viewed by churches as a subjective matter. The result of which, therefore, is a church of chaotic contradiction. Pause to think about it. Isn't it devastating how widely accepted and commonplace theological contradictions are? Ergo, to one extent or another, we are all lost in a colossal maze of denominational contradiction. The mirage of an easily navigated denominational spectrum that we think is our corporate reality is in fact merely the stuff of fairy tales. You see, our commonplace acceptance of opposing theologies and doctrines under the nonsense of streams, variety and conviction act so as to blur Paul's distinctions between those people who are presently not faithful, those who never will be faithful, and those people who are indeed faithful today. However, rather than rejoicing, don't we squirm or even balk under Paul's clear plumb line of Christian faithfulness in this letter? The implications of what he writes are too disruptive to our establishments and denominations and heart allegiances that we simply do not know where to begin. So we don't. Instead, we tend to think like this. He's so anointed, isn't he? So therefore, what he is saying must be fine. They have heaps of amazing books and albums available to buy, so therefore what they are saying must be okay. They have lots of members getting baptised, so therefore what they are teaching must be blessed. What he is saying is straight out of the Bible, so surely what he is teaching must be sound. Perhaps, but perhaps not. Firstly, let us consider our second category of people. You may be aware of the Richard Rawls of this world, the type of corruption that denies basic Christian doctrine while feigning Christian worship. Or you may be conscious of the wider progressive wokerati of the church who wander far from the core rudiments of what actually makes a disciple of Jesus in favour of the cultural liquor of the day. These are the most obvious and straightforward of Paul's charlatans to identify, as with Janes and Jambres and Alexander who also represent this second category of people. Paul says that these people are men corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. This is the language used to describe the terminally ill. These men are worse than people in error. They are wolves in sheep's clothing and like any good shepherd, one shouldn't sit down to discuss biblical fine print with wild animals. Rather, one should take a stone with a strong arm and sling it deep into their wolfish skulls. Secondly, Paul also identifies our first category of people. Both Phygelus and Hermogenes are named as men who had turned away from the truth, but who may have yet come to repent and return to faithfulness under the gentle ministry of correction, as did, for example, the household of Onesiphorus. However, we must be under no illusions. Paul says that these people, though not in terminal error, were still captured by the devil to do his bidding. This first category of people are the main burden of my letter today and who I will return to very shortly. It is difficult for many people today to even imagine, let alone identify, that there could be those among them who are in this first category of diseased doctrinal error. The most difficult thing for us to accept is that some of what we currently understand to be good and holy and of God 
must be cut away. It is easier to beware the circling wolves outside the camp and much harder to recognise the gangrene within. But Paul's burden, in part at least, is precisely for this type of people. These people are not the magicians of Pharaoh or those who deny the deity of Jesus. No, these people are brothers and sisters leading churches but who have swerved from the truth and who are teaching things in the name of Jesus that are not true. Hymenaeus and Philetus were teaching the church that some believers, perhaps all the believers, had already entered the glorified post-resurrection state. Does this sound eerily familiar to us today? Perhaps you've heard or even sung something like, we're living under an open heaven, or if we are made in the image of God, doesn't that make us like little gods? Or it is your legal right to be healed in Jesus' name. It is significant that the specific heresy that Paul describes in his very last letter to the church is described as spreading like gangrene. Again, please pause to consider Paul's use of language. The stark reality today, as for Paul and Timothy then, is that church leaders often teach error, and unless we act decisively to cut away the gangrenous tissue, we will die The Lord has shown me clearly that people of sincere faith are being upset by teaching that is not sound. He has shown me a maze, not a spectrum of denomination. When I hear for myself church pastors triumphantly prophesying that there will be no COVID-19 in this church, of umpteen people in the same church, including the pastor, contracting COVID-19, but then excusing their false prophecy by appealing to Isaiah 53.5 as the ultimate reality that people must come to appropriate as an excuse. I'm reminded that gangrene is spreading. Or when church leaders teach their people that God will look after their businesses and health and careers and travel plans and everything else in life that they want in order to remain comfortable, I'm reminded that gangrene is spreading. When friends phone me asking about the little God's theology being taught in their church and whole congregations lapping it up like dogs eating their vomit or about authoritarianism, spiritual abuse and all the distress and confusion that this causes, I'm reminded that gangrene is spreading. When senior leaders teach their congregations that they must not confront culture, And when people express concern about this, but never enough concern to walk away, I'm reminded that gangrene is spreading. It seems clear that gangrene has very much spread and is very much spreading. But this is not necessarily due to malevolent wolves. This gangrene is more dangerous than the threat of wolves because it is spread by wayward sheep. As painful as it may be to accept, the simple reality is that unless gangrene in Christian congregations is cut away, unless correction occurs, it will kill them and it will kill you. So what kind of church do you go to? Is your church faithful? Is what you believe true? These are questions that we are not necessarily afforded the luxury of time to consider. 
In closing, imagine a surgeon stood over you asking for your consent to remove your gangrenous limb. Would you sleep on it? Would you deliberate over the Christmas period and come back to it in the new year? No, you would imagine a life without your limb. You'd feel the anguish and distress of its removal, but you would immediately consent for the sake of your life. Doctrinal error may come in different forms, in different churches and at different times, but we have been given very clear wisdom in the book of 2 Timothy to be able to identify it and respond accordingly. Error must be gently corrected and thus it must be cut away. But it may be easier to cut yourself away from it rather than it from you. If your church does not look like the summarised list of Paul's five precise priorities in microcosm above, you must correct or you must escape. Christ is coming in Jesus. Nick Franks. Oh Lord, you know, it's been my desire to gently correct in this letter and in this piece. And that's my prayer that the right people would come to read this statement, this letter, and also hear this podcast version of it. Lord, we ask together now as those brothers and sisters who long for faithfulness in the church, who long for truth to shine objectively, that you would move by your spirit in every congregation in this land in which there is error, in which there is doctrinal falsity. And Lord, I pray, we pray that you would, by your spirit, convict, arrest and correct those and lead them into a place not of necessarily even corporate repentance, but into deep, intense, personal repentance for the error that they've taught, for the deception that they've agreed with. And Lord, that as a result, those who have been upset in their faith would be set on fire with truth and would be comforted at the level of recognising what is true and that which is not true. We pray for the precious and glorious name of Jesus. We pray for the glory of the Father and we ask, Father, that you would do this in your people because Jesus is coming. And we pray that he would. We pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus.